Welcome to Impact Drivers, a podcast about how entrepreneurs can build businesses that create a better world. I'm your host, Jen Helms. Welcome to the show. Jamie Jones, an entrepreneur, scientist, and educator. She is currently the executive director of Fuqua's Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation and an associate professor of the practice of management. Previously, she held leadership roles in entrepreneurship programs at Rice and Kellogg. She co-founded Impact Engine, an investment firm with a mission to bring more capital to companies that have financial returns linked to positive social and environmental impacts. She has served as an innovation advisor at RTI International, where she supported companies, governments, and non-governmental organizations with commercializing technology-driven new products. I wanted to invite Jamie onto the show to discuss a range of topics, from important principles for social impact-driven businesses, to commercializing technology-driven new products, to how the startup ecosystem could better support entrepreneurs building high-impact companies. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining the Impact Drivers podcast today. I was really excited to have you on the show, given your expertise across innovation, entrepreneurship, and social impact. So to jump in, you've seen many impact-driven companies get started. For those companies you've followed, what have been the biggest drivers of those that have succeeded? And what patterns have you seen for those that have failed? Thanks for having me today, Jen. I'm ex- excited to join you and, and all of your listeners. And uh, and this is a really a really great question. But I'm going to start out uh, talking specifically about what it comes down to. You know, the central question that all entrepreneurs face, right? Am I designing a product or service that is significantly better than what's currently there today that my customers are willing to pay me for? And so many of the impact companies that I see haven't actually designed for that specifically. But again, that's what all entrepreneurs face. And you're, you know, impact entrepreneurs have an additional layer of complexity, right? Because they're designing not just for the business piece, but also for the impact component. And so when you think about that, one of the elements to building a successful impact venture is really making sure that your business objectives, the enterprise objectives of your business, of your of your venture are inextricably linked to the impact elements of your venture. So that the more money that you're making, the more impact you're having, the more impact you're having, the more money you're 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 making. And so these are it's a really critical consideration, particularly in early business model design, because without that, you end up in situations where you are having to make trade-offs between Mm. the impact component and the business component. And one of the things I tell my students frequently because they come in and they, they, you know, particularly the undergrads these days are um, money is evil. You know, I don't want to make money. I want to, I want to be a, I want to have a social impact. Well, money is not evil. And particularly in impact ventures, you have to have money in order to actually realize the impact. And so, so, so focusing on the business side of this is in, in the capitalistic side of this uh, venture is absolutely a necessity 
And so really thinking about how those two tie together so you can minimize the times where you're forced to make trade-offs, I think is critical for an impact venture to, to really be successful. But at the core of it, just like any venture, impact ventures have to solve a problem that a customer is willing to pay for. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Do you see though, then that impact entrepreneurs have that problem more often? Or is this more just a, a, a question you think comes up more often? I mean, what, what have you seen? What have you witnessed? I don't. I don't. I think that all entrepreneurs struggle with this. We know this is a leading cause of business failure, right? right. Like, the leading right. cause of entrepreneurial depression uh, or depression among entrepreneurs is the fact that I just didn't build a product that anyone actually cared about other than me. Right. So I don't think this is an impact entrepreneur's problem, but I do think that impact entrepreneurs Oftentimes, because they're led by mission, which is really important, and I don't want to mm-hmm. undermine that in any way, but because they're so mission-centric, they oftentimes don't spend enough time thinking about how am I going to drive the enterprise portion of this business? The, the right. you know, it's actually thinking about the business side because it is again, you are serving dual purposes, and you have to figure out how to align those in such a way that 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 you're not constantly faced with tensions and trade-offs. So I think that starting a business period and being successful with a startup is really hard. And impact entrepreneurs are trying to do two different things at once, so it's doubly hard, right? You're trying yeah. to have an impact and you're also trying to run a business. And so um, oftentimes you don't always keep those two things in balance. And mm-hmm. because you're so impact focused and mission driven, that impact entrepreneurs sometimes will, will focus on that part of the equation and not enough time spent thinking and building uh, the business part of the equation that's really going to fund and drive your ability to have that impact. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. So, so as we start to talk about the business model, are there certain aspects about business model creation that entrepreneurs that are trying to have that social or environmental impact, things that they should be keeping in mind? So when impact, when impact entrepreneurs are thinking about their business model, I think oftentimes, you know, and this isn't completely unique to impact entrepreneurs, but you know, we frequently see it with impact entrepreneurs is the end user is not the same person who is paying you for the good or service. Right. And so oftentimes you have someone who is, uh, using your product and service and you have to design for their needs and, and driving the impact that you're trying to have with that end user. But because we're oftentimes serving communities or individuals that don't have the resources, right, mm. uh, to acquire our goods or services by themselves, we're dependent on perhaps a different payer or a different customer. And so we also have to design for the customer's needs too. And so really thinking about the fact that there may be a duality there of user and customer. And again, it's not completely unique to impact entrepreneurship, but it's certainly something we see frequently in impact entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. The other piece for entrepreneurs who want to think about their impact. And so maybe it's not even all, you know, I self-identify as an impact entrepreneur and this is who I want to be, but I'm an entrepreneur and I do want to at least be uh, socially and environmentally conscious, I would encourage every single entrepreneur at the start of this journey to go through the exercise of saying, what impact, both positive and negative, might my venture have? Mm-hmm. And I think we don't spend enough time thinking about the consequences of what we're doing and how it may disrupt existing actors or players in the ecosystem who have an important role or are dependent on that 
part of the value chain for their own livelihoods and the impact that that's going to have. And with impact entrepreneurs, because there is a positive impact that they're striving to have, I have this goal I'm trying to achieve. I think they in particular oftentimes don't pause and say, well, are there any potential negative social or environmental consequences to what I'm trying to accomplish? And how do I think about balancing that? That's really interesting. Any chance you have an example that that illustrates that? So yeah. an, example, an example of this in particular was, was Tom's shoes in the early days, uh, which where they were focused on, you know, I want, you know, I buy a pair of shoes as a, as a consumer and Tom's shoes gives a pair of shoes to uh, uh, an individual in a, in a developing context who, who needs a pair of shoes. And that sounds all well and good. And there's a huge positive social impact there uh, in preventing foot diseases and, and infections. But what, wasn't considered upfront, which is really hard as a startup. And this is an important trade-off to consider is that, you know, they were disrupting existing livelihoods in those marketplaces, people who were buying and selling shoes, cobblers who were repairing shoes. And so you're disrupting this existing economy in the environment that you're working in, despite the fact your overall objective is, is extremely positive, right? Is, is a positive social impact or social outcome. And so you know, Tom's has since acknowledged this and they've grown and now rather than source shoes out of out of other markets, they're actually local, trying to build manufacturing facilities to create jobs in the local markets oh, that they're serving. And so great. you're doing a lot more work to, to figure this out. But then it's a, it's a question, right? When you're a startup, mm-hmm. you can't do that, right? You have to figure out how am I going to deliver value as cheaply as possible to maximize my profitability so that I can grow and scale my impact. And right. so these are trade-offs. It's not, it's not to condemn one person's actions. It's literally a, an acknowledgement and, and a thoughtfulness to this can happen. And I need to understand that and then make decisions with that understanding and knowledge um, versus going into it blindly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. At the early stages, you're just trying to survive. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's All right. right. So, so you've done work with commercializing technology-driven new products. I'd love to hear about that experience. If you could talk about that and issues you might have seen entrepreneurs face trying to to get new products to market. For sure. And this is one of my favorite topics because I am a chemist by training. And so I believe that there is nothing more powerful than science and technology to change the world. But that science and technology has to be wrapped with a business model that is going to allow it to reach uh, the customers and the individuals that it was designed to impact, um, or else all of this was fruitless labor. And so I love working with individuals who are thinking about how do I drive science out of the lab and into the market so that they can ha- achieve that impact. But there are significant challenges. And what I find, and this goes back to, to building an entrepreneurial mindset, right? Uh, when you think about technology commercialization, it is the realization of commercial value from a from a from a technology. And so in order to realize commercial value from that someone has to pay you for it. It has to fit a need, right? Yep. And so the technology that you're doing is a that you're developing is a means to an end. It is fulfilling a job to be done. It is not uh, the end all be all in and of itself. And so what I find with people with with entrepreneurs who are thinking about technology commercialization is they're not always thinking about balancing business viability, customer desirability with technological feasibility, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to keep all three of those things in check and really understand what you're designing for 
um, or else you will design and work on a technology, continue developing a technology that doesn't actually meet the real need that exists in the marketplace, which is, you know, how that technology is going to be realized to, ha- to having full impact. So, so with, with commercialization, do you feel like that tends to happen more often that there's with more complex products or more science or technology driven products that people more often miss that customer need piece? I do. I do. I think that we get so, as scientists and engineers, we get so excited by the advancement of what we're working on by creating new knowledge and letting that new knowledge enter the world that we get very focused on on what we believe the pathway should be or what we, or, or the excitement of, of continuing to hone and refine that technology without actually developing it for a specific commercial purpose, because there's a translational piece that has to happen um, from the early stage science to the point where it becomes a product. The translate and the translational piece of this is, is, is very hard, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It takes a special mindset. It takes someone who thinks about the business side, who thinks about the customers, but then can also help uh, translate those insights of what is needed, specifically technical specs, expectations, etc. back to the lab and the scientists and engineers who are going to continue to develop the technology in such a way that it meets those expectations of the customer. Okay, so so along those lines, you know, some some technologies can take years to develop. So when when building a minimum viable product is complex and time-consuming and expensive, what lean startup principles need to be still thought about along the way? I love this question. And this is something that I challenge the students here at Duke on all the time is, well, my product's going to be six more years before it's ready to be considered for commercialization, or I'm working on something and it's too complicated. I can't actually, you know, I, I need to write these complex machine learning algorithms. And so I can't do that until um, I can't, I can't build an MVP until I have something that's working. And mm-hmm. I say, pause for a second And there are a million ways to actually go back and test assumptions, which is really what an MVP is about, right? It is, what are the fundamental assumptions about my business and how do I actually test them? Um, And the MVP oftentimes is designed to test market demand, right? Which is a very, Mm -hmm. very fundamental concept. And so rather than focusing on, I have to have something that's actually up and running, think about what is it I need to learn And how am I going to validate that learning and then scale that back? And you can do something. One of the one of the experiments that I have done previously is I was working in the international context, uh, specifically working on uh, technology translation and thinking about uh, how do you drive a technology uh, from the lab into the marketplace and creating a new market. Um, And it was going to be a big piece of technology. It, it was, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give specific details, but let's say it was the size and kind of functioning like a generator, for example, and was going to need to be installed in apartment complexes. Um, and so, you know, this wasn't ready. We didn't have a working MVP. You could plop in there and see how it was going to go. So what did we right. do? We crafted brochures that looked and felt like what the product would be with some mock-ups that gave the technical specs, right? And mm. gave the performance outcomes and stated what we believed to be the value proposition to the buyer, which was in this case, uh, the, the building contractors and developers. And so, and then sat down with them and had customer conversations about what mattered and what didn't matter and why they would buy or why they would not buy and what elements were interesting to them. And we were able to take that information back, right, to the scientists and engineers in the lab and say, 
here's where you need to focus your attention because the decision to buy is going to be based off A and B. And I know we thought C and D mattered, but they're secondary. And so if we can nail A and B, then we actually may have a product that someone wants to purchase. And so there's some very simple things that you can do to start to test market demand, to get customer feedback very, very early, um, even when you don't have a working functioning prototype or MVP. Yeah. And it sounds like in the example you gave, for instance, it really can impact how you spend your development time going forward. So you better have those conversations early. So you're, you're building the right products. 100%. And, you know, and I, I see this over and over again. I do uh, consulting with, with large organizations in, in the heavy industrials uh, space. And, and, you know, it's, it's engineers who are driving the innovation within those organizations. Um, but they're not always pausing and, and looking at it from the business side of saying, let me go talk to my customer who might be in a different value chain um, and understand, do they value what I'm working on? Yeah. Um, particularly when it's an innovation project that's really entering into a new market or new space that uh, the company hasn't played in before. And so I can't, you know, I, I, I can't stress enough the importance of even if I'm years away, having those customer conversations now because they're going to inform what you're working on. And it's going to be a huge efficiency, right, in terms of efficiency in utilization of your capital and in utilization of your time and of your human human laboring capacity, right? And so really thinking about how do I let um, where I'm headed drive my internal development. So, all right. So many of the innovations the world needs are hard to build, uh, and don't fit typical investor timelines. Do you have any thoughts on how startups building such businesses should approach funding? Yeah, this is this is so hard, right? And I think we are very, especially when it comes to truly innovative new things that are that are going to address some of those sustainable development goals that we all are are striving to see uh, addressed, right? For funding early stage science. Uh, we are typically dependent on uh, federal grants, right? And so we, we look to the NSF, we look to the NIH, the Department of Defense, Department of Energy to fund a lot of this early stage research. But there's also a gap between the early stage research and, and, and the, the point where the technology is ready to capture commercial value. And so in that translational phase, there, there are limited funding options. And this is a, a, a big gap that exists in the marketplace. Right now, two of your main options are STTR funding, which is a federal granting uh, opportunity, as well as SBIR grants, right, uh, and, and funding to help support that translational work for early stage startups who are leveraging technology to try to create commercial value. Um, in the private capital markets, there's there's a we see a lot less of this. Um, the Gates Foundation uh, founded Breakthrough Energy Ventures specifically to try to address this translational funding gap in the mm -hmm. in the energy space. Um, but you know, there's a great post. Uh, I think it was uh, an article recently, an interview with Bill Gates himself, who openly acknowledges this may not be the uh, the the most optimal use of capital, right? In the, in the sense of potential for return. So I think they they know that these are very very high risk, but they know that the value of doing this could have significant impact on the world. Um, and we may not actually they may not actually see the commercial returns that a traditional venture fund would see. But given the deep pockets, I think they're all okay with that. Um, it's a yeah. great interview uh, that, that your listeners should definitely take the time to read. It shed a lot of insight on that for me. I think there's a, a, another interesting question that emerges when you talk about technology translation, though, is and, and thinking about 
hard tech or deep tech products and services that you're building, right? And it is, it is, you have to separate and think about differently the technology risk and the market risk. You know, most dig, most digital products, there's not a lot of technology risk, right? Tesla, the iPad, we knew how to do 90% of this before. The technology risk is not there. We know how to execute it, right? The risk is on the market side. Will customers use this? It's a new market space with a new product in a new category, you know, will customers actually want this and adopt this? Um, but when we start thinking about deep tech, it's oftentimes there's a there's a huge technology risk and a huge market risk. It makes it incompatible with the private markets oftentimes. Um, and so, you know, you think about biotech on the other hand, and biotech has, has started, the biotech space has started to figure this out. And they had, and part of the reason for that is that they have huge technical risk, but they actually have, much less market risk, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you can develop a new oncology product that works, I mean, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's cure cancer. Right. right? Um, and so the market risk is, is, is actually much lower in those situations where the technology risk is very high. And then on fully digital uh, options, it tends to be that the, the technology risk is very low and the market risk is very high. And then we have things that fall in between or fall early and are, are you know fit, hit the middle between both, which have high high to high-ish technology risk and also high market risk. And those are where we don't see the capital markets really being able to, to have a, a great funding mechanism or solution in place. Um, yeah. And I actually think the energy space is one of those examples. There's a lot of technology risk that's still at play, but then there's also a huge market risk around adoption. But um, hopefully we're turning the corner on that soon. Yeah. Do you think that government has more of a role to play there then in filling that gap? Or do we see that as like a philanthropic solution or any theories there on? Um, that's a great question. And I think there's probably lots of things that the, the government can do to actually motivate uh, private uh, actors to come in and into this space. Right. And so uh, thinking about are there tax incentives for placing investments into these types of investments, uh, these types of opportunities. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and really starting to create some categories in the spaces where it's going to have positive social impact, where we can define the social impact. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think government is always the solution to, to all of our answers here. What changes have you seen in the startup ecosystem over the past decade and what changes stand out to you the most? And what do you think is on the horizon? I think there's, uh, interesting changes afoot in the in the startup ecosystem, particularly on the funding side and how we think about building um, durable startup ventures. And I think, uh, you know, if you if you look back over the, the the past decade or so, there's been a huge focus on on really, really fast growth without necessarily completely understanding the unit economics or even having profitable unit economics. Mm -hmm. um, and I think particularly with the with the, you know, current crises that we've faced over the past past year, I think there's a lot of founders and there's also a lot of, of funders who are thinking critically about building durable businesses and putting the pipes in place early to build businesses that scale and grow sustainably and thoughtfully. Um, and so I see a lot more of that where we focus on, you know, profitable unit economics and building the systems and structures um, and perhaps growing a little slower, but doing it with intentionality. And so I will be curious to see if that uh, trend holds um, or, yeah. or not over the, the coming years. Um, and the second thing that I'm seeing, which I think is a huge positive, I think is a huge positive on many fronts is 
I think we're getting more creative with the types of capital that we're create that that we're that startups have access to. So thinking about flexible financing and using a combination of uh, of perhaps venture funding or you know a, a private funding uh, in combination with a debt structure. So venture mm-hmm. debt, for example, to cover working capital costs. Um, and 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 you know I think that's going to have a, a be very very important for startups. I think it's going to be very important, particularly. Um, for startups who have diverse founders, right? And maintaining more control of, of their company and being able to experience that growth and that wealth creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are, you know, increasing numbers of even funds that are saying like, I'm not looking to try to, to map uh, what the venture industry has looked like to date where I need one home run and, and, you know, two infield hits and the rest are going to die. Um, but rather I'm going to hit a bunch of singles and doubles and triples and that's fine. And I'm going to, and I'm going to focus on uh, ensuring that I bring in uh, more, a more diverse set of founders that, uh, and, and help them grow and build sustainable and profitable businesses that are going to create wealth for them and their communities. And so I think there's just a lot more creativity in how we're thinking about financing early stage growth. Um, and I think that's going to have a lot of positive outcomes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, where where it'll leave more ownership and wealth in the hands of the the founders themselves versus just for the investors. And I think founders are wanting that. I think it's I think founders understand that you know I'm investing my time and energy, and I I want to have the benefit, but I also want the control. I think it's as much about controlling the trajectory of the venture and and uh, as it is about the money. Yeah, that makes sense. So along those lines, what changes in the startup ecosystem do you think would most support more impact-driven companies getting founded and becoming successful? As we think about, you know, as you as you start to say, like, well, what's it going to take to have the existing companies out there, uh, you know, be successful, right? The impact companies. And I think what we've seen over the past, you know, around a decade, well, around to a decade uh, of time is a, is a real professionalization of the impact investing space. There was a um, a, a huge need a decade ago, eight to 10 years ago, around some of that early stage seed and series A capital. There's an increasing number of funds uh, and private investors that are fill, that have filled that space. But now those companies are growing and scaling, right? And so ensuring that there's that, that follow-on series B and series C that aligns with the mission of these impact companies. Um, uh, I think having that capital available in that spaces as they mature, watching the impact investing space mature as well. And I certainly think that's happening um, but it's something to you know keep our eye on uh, because it's important to have uh, the the conduit set up for that that capital flow uh, to match the the company's scale and trajectory as well. And so um, exciting kind of watch that play out over the over the next decade as well. Um, and then when it comes to starting more more impact uh, driven companies, I think that really a, a question that I ask is how do we actually think about you know, equity in in the startup ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And when you think about equity and you think about bringing in underrepresented and underestimated founders into this overall ecosystem, that has its own impact. And then oftentimes they're much more motivated. There's, a, there's research that says they're much more motivated by the community impact than they are necessarily the financial gain. And so what can we do to really start to say, and, uh, and and make sure that, you know, every single person who has entrepreneurial aspirations out there has the opportunity to become an entrepreneur and actually pursue their dreams and thereby have the impact. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for joining the Impact Drivers podcast today, Jamie. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jen. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Impact Drivers. Make sure to visit our website at impactdrivers.io where you can subscribe to the podcast. I'm looking for feedback as I continue to build out the show. Have any thoughts on what you've liked or haven't liked? Email me at jen at impactdrivers.io. Join us next time for a chance to be inspired and learn from the entrepreneurs daring to build the hard businesses that create a better world.